Francesca Leah Block's Weetsy Bat is so beautifully written and so full of important, progressive, inclusive messages that it's hard for me to find the right words to use to intro it. You're going to hear a lot about this book from me and my guest over the next hour or so. But to kick us off, I'm going to borrow some words from other people. The New York Times Book Review called it transcendent. Publishers Weekly called it sparkling. In 2008, Jezebel deemed it, quote, the book for girls who ended up taking a gay dude to prom. The LA Times says that it's a story that proves someone understands. Didn't we all need a little more of all of those things back in high school? Don't we all need a little more of all of those things now? Personally, I think the answer is a big yes. Published in 1989, Bat is the story of a girl named, well, Bat, who grows up in Los Angeles and finds happiness and acceptance in a best friend named Dirk. When she's offered three wishes by a genie, she requests loving partners for herself and for Dirk and for a home where they can all live together. Thanks to a somewhat surprising series of events, Weetsy gets everything she wants. And although the journey is complicated at times, she ultimately discovers that your family is what you make it and that love really is transcendent. There's that word again. The book touches on themes of identity, sexuality, addiction, and suicide, and hints at the AIDS epidemic. For a book aimed at teens and written in the late 80s, that's pretty groundbreaking. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Maya Kobabe to the podcast. Maya is a non-binary queer author and illustrator with an MFA in comics from California College of the Arts. Air's first full-length book, Gender Queer, a memoir, is out this week from Lion Forge. Air work focuses on themes of identity, sexuality, anti-fascism, fairy tales, and homesickness. Maya's work can be found on Tumblr and Instagram at redgoldsparks and online at redgoldsparkspress.com and patreon.com slash mayakobabe. As always, all of those links will be available in the show notes for this week's episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 49. You can also go there to find a link to learn more about Maya's new book, Gender Queer. Thanks so much to Maya for guesting on episode 49. Thanks also to Libro FM for partnering with SSR. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. When I buy audiobooks from Libro.fm, I support my favorite Brooklyn indie, Books Are Magic. Show your favorite local indie some love on your next audiobook listen. Show SSR some love by following us on social media. Find the pod at SSRPOD on Instagram and Twitter, and by searching the SSR podcast on Facebook. If you love listening to the show, your five-star ratings and reviews go a really long way on iTunes, so please consider sharing one if you have a few moments. You can also support production of SSR by coming on board as a Patreon supporter. As you may know, I'm an independent podcaster, which means that I produce, research, host, and edit SSR all on my own, so your monthly contributions are much appreciated. As a patron, you can give as little as a dollar per month, and there are really fun rewards up for grabs. Visit www.patreon.com SSRpodcast for more information, or click support on our homepage at www.ssrpodcast.com. Thanks so much to all the Patreon supporters out there listening. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. 
We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasek, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Maya. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks I'm so very much. excited. Thank you for joining me. We have been talking about this for a while, and mm-hmm. I've really been looking forward to talking about Weetsie Bat with you. Me too. Uh, this is definitely a, a super fave of my early teen years that I had not revisited. And when I heard about your podcast and like the theme of it, rereading a book from that sort of era, I was like, oh yes, oh yes. You originally wanted to talk about Alana, and we actually have an episode about that that I'll link to in the show notes. And I, okay, I have so many questions. I want to know why your first choice would have been Alana. I want to know why we ended up picking Weetsie Bat. But first, I have to share with the listeners, you read over 100 books a year. I do. You log all of your reading. You have sort of this very interesting history with becoming a reader. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that before we get into this book specifically. Definitely. So um, yes, as you said, I have maintained a goal of reading 100 books a year um, since the year 2003. And I've kept a list. So I, I know that that's Um, factually accurate. But why I started doing that is because actually I was very late to reading. I am dyslexic and I really struggled. I'm a very right-brained image-based thinker. I'm a cartoonist. I'm an artist. That's just sort of how my brain works. So I didn't learn to read until I was 11 years old, which was for me, it was the summer between fifth and sixth grade. It was a real struggle for me. I took a lot of remedial reading lessons. I was consistently like, you know, the very bottom of my class for all the years up till sixth grade. And I, I love that my teachers were so supportive and no one ever made me feel like a failure or like I wouldn't achieve it. I was always confident that I would get there. And people were very much like, you know, just, you know what, just take your time. You'll get there. But I was impatient about it. Like I wanted to read. I loved stories. I felt behind my peers and that everyone else could read things like the first Harry Potter book came out when I was in fourth grade and everyone else could read it. And I had to wait for my mom to read it to me. Um, you're like, mom, come on. I know. And that was really, um, a really good timing for me is that I became so addicted to Harry Potter that after several years of remedial reading lessons, there was one night where I just took the second Harry Potter book and a flashlight into my bed and was like, I'm not going to sleep until I can read. I like, I literally was like, I'm just going to stay awake until I figure out what happens next in this book. And that night is sort of the night that I guess all the pieces kind of click together in my brain and by morning, I had struggled through like most of a chapter and I was a reader like the next day. So books are so important to me. And then, but because I was so late to it, I felt everyone my age had read a million books or maybe more like a hundred, but <laughs> many. And so I was like, oh, I have to catch up. So then I started reading at just this frantic pace where I was like, everyone has read all of the Harry Potter books, all of the Redwall books, all of the Narnia books, you know, all these classic series, the type of books you cover in your podcast. Right. <laughs> and I had read nothing. So I was like, I have to catch up. So I just went on this like ferocious reading pace that I have just basically mostly maintained. As a freshman in high school, I started the list to see how many books I could read over one summer. And it ended up being 68, which was a mix of novels, graphic novels, a lot of the sort of YA books that are pretty short. And then I was like, I was so proud of my list. I'm going to keep this list indefinitely. So I kept the list on paper for many years. And then I joined Goodreads in, I want to say 2014. So I've been logging on Goodreads ever since then. And I find the goals really useful. I really like, I set it to a hundred and then it tells me the percent. So I can kind of track like, am I reading 
about the same pieces last year? Am I reading slower? Am I reading faster? Do I want to read a couple short books to pad my number? Right. I used to be on Goodreads. It's a very long story as to why I'm not anymore. It was a very strange situation that happened when I was working in publishing. So now I just log my books in a Google Doc kind of thing. I'm so impressed that you have a log from so many years. And 100 books a year is impressive. I'm getting there since I started the podcast. But consistently reading 100 books a year or more, that's amazing. Especially since you came to reading late, just you felt like you had to catch up. And I I appreciate Mm -hmm. that you did. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it's important to me. It's become a really key part of my identity. And it's it's one of my favorite ways to connect to people is to ask, like, what are you reading? So... Mm. Yeah, I use it as a way to connect to people. Often if a friend recommends a book they really love, I'll go read it so that we can talk about it. So for me, reading is a very social and act, like connection-based activity. Well, you're definitely in the right place then. Here we are, SSR, at the end of the show. Of course, I'm going to need to find out what you've been reading. So mm. get ready for that question. We're always looking for recommendations for our community. I want to chat briefly about Alana because as I mentioned, mm-hmm. that was the first, that was kind of your first pick. And ironically, I think when you and I were first in touch was it was like a week before I recorded the Alana episode and I was like oh yeah. sorry <laughs> yeah we're already doing no that but given that that was your first choice I'd love for you to share a little bit about why that book meant so much to you and why that may have been your your uh, first option if it were up to you so I just love I love the Alana books I've read almost every book by Tamora Pierce and the Alana series remains my favorite. Alana was the first character that I really connected with. I loved Harry Potter, but I didn't relate to any of the characters. I didn't feel like a Hermione. I didn't Mm -hmm. feel like a Ron or Harry or Neville or Luna, but I felt like an Alana, partly because, so I'm a person who's assigned female at birth, but now identify as non-binary. And before I had the language to sort of express that, even to myself, what I just knew was that I was a girl who didn't feel like a girl. People were telling me that I was a girl, but I was like, but I don't want to be. I would rather do the boy things. I would rather, I want want to be a knight, not a princess, sort of a thing. So Alana's story of disguising her gender and living for many years as a boy and going to school with the boys and learning, you know, like horseback riding and archery and sword fighting. I was just like, this is what I want. And if I was in this time, I would have made the same choice. And I was also like a short, stubborn person who was, uh, so I just identified so much with Alana and Alana in the series ends up, um, identifying as a cisgender woman by the end of the series and comes out about her gender. But I do think that the book is really open to a lot of interesting queer reads. And I like to think that Alana, this is my fan fiction, that Alana sort of coming out as a woman maybe made space for other people who are either queer or gender expansive in say like the Tortal Court to maybe also come out about identities. Maybe there was a gay knight that we don't, maybe whose story we don't hear, but perhaps when Alana came out as a woman and was accepted, maybe, maybe one of the knights who was queer perhaps was also able to come out and follow that example of sort of like bravery of being your true self. So I just love the Alana book so much. But the thing is, I think I love them too much to be critical of them. So probably it's better we picked a different book to talk about. <laughs> well, I do love your take on Alana because in our conversation about it, we, we spoke a lot about how when these books are written, there wasn't really a language around people who were non-binary or who didn't identify with the gender they were assigned mm-hmm. at birth. And so we sort of, we were fascinated by the fact that this book has been so important to so many teens who grew up mm-hmm. uncomfortable with their gender identity and questioning and sort of trying to figure out, like, was Tamara Pierce speaking to something that, that she wasn't prepared to talk about? Or was this just a girl who grew up and wanted to play with the boys and kind of figuring out where it 
where it lies in that conversation. And ultimately, as you said, Alana does identify as a cisgender woman. So I think, again, it's like, you know, where is where are we talking about just like not having the language to talk about something yeah. um, versus like what's actually going on? But but the point is that a book like Alana and a book like Weetsie Bat, which we're about to start talking about, mm-hmm. becomes, I think, such a valuable resource for teens who are looking for some representation or like, as you said, something to hold on to yeah. in the world of books where maybe there aren't a lot of characters that feel familiar. I have a lot of trans and non-binary friends who also really identified with, sometimes with Alana, though a lot of people also are really into the character of either Dane or Kel. And I think part of it is just shows the strength of the writing. Like these characters are so well-rounded and so fleshed out and interesting and unique that it's like, it's their very uniqueness that makes us able to identify with them, right? Because mm-hmm. uniqueness makes things more universal often in literature. So I think it's really just a testament to the strength of Tamora Pierce's writing. And she did include, there are out queer characters in some of the books that she published later in the Circle of Magic series, et cetera. So I know that she is definitely an, an ally, which is great. Right. It is wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Wheatsie Bat. Yes. What was your first experience with reading Wheatsie Bat? Do you have any detailed memories of like where you were, how you experienced it, what you felt about it, and what made you want to come back to it? I kind of know because we went back and forth about the books right. we were going to choose. But ultimately, why was this your pick? So I read this for the first time shortly before I started keeping my list. So I don't know the exact, say, month and date and year, but it was I was probably in eighth grade. So I was like 13. So at this point, I'd been reading for two years. I'm pretty sure I found it on the shelf at my local library, and I was probably just attracted by the cover, like um, the cover that I that I read and then I got again to reread. It's like very bright. It has kind of an abstract photo cover that's like a picture of definitely like a girl who looks like she's maybe dancing in a club, but it's like a very kind of artsy, blurry photo. So the details aren't clear. The name is odd, like Weetsie Bat. I feel like I definitely did a lot of just like judging books by their covers at that age where I was just pick up something that looked kind of interesting. So I don't know that anyone told me about it. I'm pretty sure I just found it and started it and was like, oh my God, what is this? One thing I will say is, so I live um, in the Bay Area in California, but my father's side of the family all live in Los Angeles. So I had been to Los Angeles many times as a young person. Um, We visited at least twice a year to visit my grandparents. And most of this book is set in Los Angeles, but it was a totally different Los Angeles than the one I had experienced. So part of it was like visiting a place in through literature that was familiar, but had been given this just magical, glittering, glamoury cast was very interesting to me. And I just loved the characters. I loved Weetsie Bat and her best friend from high school, Dirk, um, who both seem just like so mature and charming and suave for high school students and so free. And then when Dirk ends up coming out to Weetsie as gay, and I think it's the second or maybe third chapter, I think it's the second chapter, I I was just like, oh my goodness. So that was just very exciting to me because I really hadn't read, I mean, I'd probably read less than 10 books that had an openly queer character at that point. Yeah, very few. So this was just, this was like lightning. This was so so exciting. Well, and I'd heard of Weetsie Bat vaguely. I was aware of Francesca Leah Block. As listeners know, I worked in book publishing for a number of years, and I had a colleague who was a huge fan of Francesca Leah Block. Come to find out now, I actually have a lot of friends and former colleagues who are big fans of this series and of Francesca Leah Block. Um, so I was I was aware of Francesca Leah Block, um, but I, I had never gotten a chance to read any of these books. And when you and I were speaking about it, I don't think I was aware 
of the fact that this book was written in 1989. 1989. I know. 1989. 30 so, years ago. Yeah. And so I like started reading the summary and getting a sense of what it was about. And you and I obviously had talked about really wanting to mm-hmm. prioritize a book that featured queer characters. And for some reason, I, I just did not think about the fact that this was a book that possibly could have been written 30 years ago until I, know. I had started reading it. And I was like, oh, this is this is way ahead of its time in so many ways. Yes. So I think that's important to note right up front. This is a book that really started broaching really big subjects long before many other YA authors are doing it. Really, this was a time before YA was even a thing. I was reading some stories in preparation for our talk today about how Francesca Leah Black sort of like woke up one day finding herself at the forefront of a genre that she had never even really thought about because young adults, you know, in quotes. Kind of didn't really exist at the time yet. It didn't exist. This book is hard to place, I would say, genre-wise. It is very short. If a reader hasn't seen it yet, it is a slim 100 pages. Like, mine is 109, but I think there's a blank page between every chapter. So it's a very very short book, the size, frankly, of like an easy reader, almost, or like a, a young middle grade book. But the characters are... I think seniors in high school in the first year, and then it covers a couple of years of their life until they are sort of settled with partners and then eventually are actually um, sort of like a group raising some children. And it deals with, yeah, it deals with, there's um, the death of a grandmother character. There's characters who suffer w- with drugs. Um, there's references to the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. There's really a lot of things that I had never read about before in a book and that I, as an adult now reading it, I'm like, oh, it's surprising to me that this book is still marketed as like a kind of like a YA young teen book considering the mature themes. Yeah, I agree. I found one quote in an article in Jezebel about this book and I'll read it because I think it really speaks to to what we're discussing just about Mm -hmm. how far ahead of its time this story is. Also, the books are about a teenage girl with a bleached blonde flat top named Wheatsy who lives with her gay best friend Dirk and his boyfriend Duck who sleep with her so she can have a baby named Cherokee because the love of her life, whose name is my secret agent lover man, doesn't want a child. But everything works out okay and they end up all raising the baby together. Can you believe that in 1989, someone had the audacity to publish Wheatsy Bat as a book for teenagers? I know, which is, oh God, I'm so happy this book exists. I am so happy that I read it. I'm so happy that other people could read it. Um, I'm so glad that it is being reprinted and people, no one has tried to like age up the audience. They're like, oh no, this is definitely an adult book, which would be a hard sell giving its length. Um, but yeah, the overall message of it is one of just beautiful sort of like queer found family love. And it's, yeah, it's three adult men and one woman end up raising, co-raising two babies who like biologically relate, but then also like adopted by like the other co-parents. And they all live in a beautiful little cottage in like, it's this magical sort of fantasy version of LA. And it's just like, it's just so, it's like astonishing to me. Yeah. That that is what's happening in this book. That being said, it's also not a perfect book. It has some flaws as well, but like the overall message is one of, of just like beautiful, queer found familiness. So getting into it this time as an adult, I don't know about you. I read this in one sitting, which was same. It was same. like such a luxury. I woke up on a Sunday morning, I picked it up, and by the time I got out of bed, I had finished the book. And it was so lovely. So listeners, if you're looking for that kind of experience that also happens to include a beautifully written book. I mean, it, the mm-hmm. the prose in this book is gorgeous. I highly recommend Wheatsy Bat. So I read it in one sitting, and I had never read it before, so, you know, I'm coming to it for the first time, but I'm curious sort of big picture, 
what was your experience reading the book now versus what it was reading the book when you were 13? How did you pick up on things differently? Again, sort of like bird's eye view. How were those experiences different and how did you perceive the book differently as an adult? I would say the main difference is that as a teen, I really didn't pick up on the moments that now feel slightly culturally insensitive. And I think I was just, again, I was very young when I read it the first time and I was did not have an awareness of this, but there are some character names that feel questionable to me now as an adult in 2019. There is a Jamaican man named Raphael Jalov, mm-hmm. who is married to a Chinese American woman, I believe, whose name is Ping. Mm-hmm. And... Then Wheatsey and Duck and Dirk's baby, and they, all of them are white people, name their baby girl Cherokee. Yeah. Also, a character who's implied to be a First Nations character whose name is Coyote. Um, so there's just sort of like, I feel weird about this. Mostly naming a white baby Cherokee, frankly. And I know that that is a name that people have, and I don't want to maybe insult someone who has that is in their family as a name. But it's it definitely, to me, it reads strange. And I wonder if that is a choice that, that an author would make today. I know that I, as a an author would not make that choice today. Um, and I wonder if the fact that the other main characters are Wheatsy and literally my secret agent lover man, like, do we forgive these names that are like a little bit stereotypical because the other names are like also like totally off the wall? I'm not sure. So yeah, I wanted to talk more about the names because the names yeah. are such an interesting They're part of this book. Crazy. They're crazy. Yeah. And they really do lend this fairy tale quality to the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I did a little bit of research because Right off the bat, I'm like, Wheatsy. Why is your name Wheatsy? Her parents Mm -hmm. are a little off the rails, but I'm like, I don't really under. They have fairly typical names. Her dad's name is Charlie. Her mom's name is Brandy Lynn. So I was like, you know, at what point does this become a fairy tale? And it seems, Mm -hmm. based on a little bit of research into the series as a whole, that there's a prequel that came out in 2012 about Wheatsy's life in middle school when her name was Louise. So Wheatsy seems to have somehow evolved out of her given name being Louise. So I have not read this prequel, so this is news to me. Yeah, there's a bunch of other books in the series. So I've read the ones that follow this. Okay. There's a series called Dangerous Angels, which is a collection of five. And um, one of them follows Cherokee Bat. One of them follows Witch Baby, the other baby that the family co-raises. And then another one is about actually Raphael and Ping's son. Okay. Yeah. I, so I was like, okay, so Wheatsy, we at least kind of know where that comes from. Dirk, somewhat of a mainstream name. So, yeah, you know, those are kind so of the crazy. first characters we meet, Wheatsy and Dirk. And then the next two characters that sort of round out their family are Duck, who is yeah. Dirk's partner, yeah. and my secret agent lover man, who is Wheatsy's partner. These yeah. names, they just don't roll off the tongue, people. I feel like no. I say that a lot in these episodes. I'm going to work on it. My secret agent lover man, we might stumble over it a couple of times. They call him my secret for short sometimes. Yeah. The, um, yeah. And apparently his given name is Max, which we find out later. Oh, but okay. I forgot about that. I was thinking a little bit while I was just, you know, getting ready to talk to you. And I had this theory about like the ways in which Duck and my secret agent lover man come into Dirk and Wheatsey's mm-hmm. life, which is that basically Wheatsey meets a genie and she gets three wishes. <laughs> Normal. Mm-hmm. This happens all the time in my life. And she I wishes feel like this, for yeah, love. one tiny... One tiny detail is so is that um, Dirk's grandmother, who's Grandma Fifi, yeah. gives Wheatsey this lamp, and it turns out it has a genie in it. Um, yeah, and that's the genie offers these the three wishes. Yeah, and one of her wishes is that she wants to have this little house. She wants 
Dirk, who is her best friend, to find his duck. And duck is sort of code for, like, a good guy because Wheatsy has had extremely bad taste in men and has... There's hints about some really negative sexual encounters early in the book um, that I picked up on. And then her third wish is that she wants to find her secret agent lover man. And so then when Dirk and Wheatsy meet their partners, they are conveniently named and they introduce themselves as Duck and my secret agent lover man. And so I was just jotting down some notes and like trying to wrap my head around this concept of these crazy names. And with those two names in particular, my question is just like, do we see in people what we want to see them? Mm. Do we do we look for in people that we meet what we want? And then do we get that? You know, did we see go into the world and go into this process of of offering wishes to the genie with an expectation that they were going to get a duck and a my secret agent lover man and that's what they got. I don't, you know, it's a very, it's a very complicated question because I don't, I don't think that these people are actually named Duck and My Secret Agent Lover Man. So it's like, what is the author trying to say about that? I mean, it is in the context of a fairy tale, but my theory is like, is the author just trying to show us that sometimes we find just what we're looking for in people? That could be. And I also feel like there's part of it is like the wishing on the genie is a little bit like stating your intention to the universe. Mm-hmm. It's like that putting out the energy that you want to receive kind of a thing, because this, the appearance of this genie is the only magical element in the book aside from then like the names. So, um, and the third wish, you know, um, we see third wish is to have a beautiful cottage for them all to live in. And then grandma Fifi who gave her the lamp ends up passing away and willing the cottage to her and Dirk. So they get the house through sort of, it's, it's sad because the grandma passes away, but they, get this beautiful house to live in and so that to me kind of also shows that the wishes are kind of magical but they're kind of just like the chances that life gives you and yeah maybe what it is is that Dirk just happens to meet the right guy and and like is lucky enough to recognize that you know what I mean and the same thing with Wheatsy like she meets a man who feels like a secret agent lover but his name's actually Max but he turns out being the right guy and yeah maybe it's about like recognizing when life gives you what you asked for or something or or being clear with the universe what you want I do think that you can read it Either if you want to read it as a fairy tale, that's open to that. And you can also sort of read it as a metaphor if you prefer to read it that way. And I like that it's ambiguous. I do too. I think what's interesting is, as you mentioned, it's a very short book. You can read it very literally as just this very quick to the point story about a found family and how they all come together. Or you can really build another 100 or 200 pages worth of story in your head around this family because the language yep. while it's beautiful is pretty spare and so you can you can think about it as you said you can think about it as a metaphor you can think about it as a fairy tale and there's just like a lot of different ways you can imagine what's really going on in this story there is and there's also quite often quite a bit of time in between chapters so there'll be basically the first chapter we meet we see and Dirk they're in high school it never mentions them graduating from high school but like it kind of just flows right into them driving dating moving in together and it's like oh wait did we graduate from high school here at some point like did we think about college like there's like you know what I mean they just and then like you know and then grandma yeah grandma Phoebe passes away and Wheatsy goes and visits her father her parents are divorced so her father lives mostly usually in New York um, and then she comes back and then right in the middle of the book there's a chapter called Wheatsy wants a baby and that kind of starts the second half of the story which is like we want to start our family and so the second half of the book is about like 
are we or are we not going to become parents together? There's definitely space where you could imagine other adventures for them also in between the chapters, I think. Yeah, I found myself writing about halfway through the book. I just wrote, how old are they? Yes, I know. Because at the Mm -hmm. beginning, like, it's very clear they're in high school. The first sentence of the book is great. Excuse any page-turning listeners. But the first sentence of the book is just, the reason Weetzie Bat hated high school was because no one understood, which every high schooler can relate to at some level. Yep. So it's very clear in that first chapter that Weetzie and Dirk meet in high school, and that's where they bond, and that's where they have their first series of adventures. And then, as you mentioned, you kind of, like, lose track of the timeline and all of a sudden, all these other things are happening. And I realized, I was like, wait, 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 where are we? And it it sort of just goes to show that maybe it doesn't really matter because what really yeah. matters is what they're building and who they're becoming and what they're figuring out about life. But it is interesting that, that Francesca Leah Block goes to such efforts to place them in time at the beginning. And then yeah. that kind of falls to the wayside as you go forward through the book. I don't, yeah, I don't know anything about the story of her writing this novel, but sometimes I imagine it was kind of like a NaNoWriMo project where she actually sat down and wrote like the whole book in one month and it kind of just poured out of her. And again, I don't know if that's true, but to me, it reads that way. It reads like the kind of daydream and late night kind of story that you like just sort of pours out of your pen. And I think partly that's because, I mean, the descriptions are also like gorgeous. Like you said, there's descriptions of all of these LA landmarks that are just, they're so glamorous. Like they go to all of these restaurants and Sunset Boulevard and thrift stores, and they're always wearing like glitter and sequins and fur and feathers and leather boots and they're riding motorcycles or they're they're rolling with the top down you know in like a Cadillac or something and they go to the beach and they you know they get tacos and they dance all night and it's very magical in that sense but then interestingly again towards the later chapters of the book Weasley starts noticing like how the neighborhoods of Los Angeles have changed since her childhood so she'll like a restaurant that she mentions early on she'll be like oh like Okie Dogs is gone now and now it's like a it's like a furniture store or something. So she almost starts noticing the changing of the neighborhoods, which I think you can also again be like this is sort of noticing that she's getting older, but we're using sort of the metaphor of the changing of the landscape to sort of reflect a more internal change. Perhaps, or maybe it's a comment on gentrification because this is the kind of book that would obliquely reference gentrification. I agree with you. From what I read, Francesca Leah Block was really inspired by the city to write the book. I did find one quote from her in the LA Times where she said, While Los Angeles was full of fairy tale magic and possibility for me, there was also a sense of encroaching darkness. My friends and I yeah. found ourselves confronted with punks wearing swastikas as fashion statements. People were beaten at concerts. There was the personal pain I was experiencing due to my father's illness, and there were the first terrifying signs of the, of the disease that would later be named AIDS. I wrote Weetzie Bat as a celebration of the beauty and sparkle I had seen and as a way to deal with the suffering. And I think that speaks a little bit to what you're talking about, just A, in terms of sort of how her process with this book started, and also like the contrast that she was dealing with in terms of the city. Do we spoil books on this podcast? Oh, yeah, we spoil them all. Okay. So I will say, so um, like you mentioned in that quote, so Weetzie's father, Charlie, begins to get ill um, in like the last quarter till the last third of this book. And he does end up passing away before the end of the book. And that is really a moment of, of really deep grief for Weetzie. And she, you know, she really has trouble, like she really has to work through this, through this grief. And, you know, her mother is still living, you know, her mother is very sympathetic and also sad, but, you know, she had divorced Weetzie's father. So anyway, so she has to deal with this grief, which is also kind 
kind of around the time she starts mentioning the changes in Los Angeles. And then the final sort of act of the book, um, they have the babies. They seem to be all settled in happily together. Duck, um, Dork's boyfriend, many of his friends are, are getting afflicted by um, HIV. And he ends up like briefly like running away from the family. He like, he's just like, I can't handle that. Basically that love is killing my friends and my community. It's, it's very, um, this was the part that I understood the least uh, when I read it at 13, there's a chapter called love is a dangerous angel, which is what she ended up. Dangerous angels ended up being the series title and duck basically just, he writes us a note to them. He writes to dear. And then the names, everyone lives in their house. Um, I found out yesterday that my friend is sick. He's really sick. The world is too scary right now, even though we're okay. How can we love anyone when you could kill them just by loving them? I love you all too much. I'm going away for a while. I'll never forget you. And Dirk, I'll, I'll, love you more than anyone but he then runs away and he leaves them and then they're like how do we handle this like do we let him go or do we chase him down and find him and Dirk ends up does end up pursuing Duck all the way up to San Francisco and does find him in San Francisco and then it mentions a fun set of San Francisco locations that I'm more familiar with because I've lived (laughs) in that city Polk Street and the Castro and Chinatown and they kind of have this this reuniting scene where they decide no love is worth it like even if love is scary and dangerous and can lead to heartbreak and even illness and death like that love is worth it and they sort of choose love at the end and duck comes home and that's really the final note of the book and it's um at the very last line is Wheatsy thought i don't know about happily ever after but i know about happily which is really wonderful yeah she looks around the table at this at this sort of interesting family unit that she's created Mm -hmm. and it's really all been born out of these wishes that she had at the beginning. She was wishing for a partner. She wanted love for her best friend. She wanted a home. The implication is that her parents were struggling with the drug and alcohol addiction. So Mm -hmm. I think she, we're meant to believe she comes from a background that doesn't feel particularly cozy or safe or comfortable. And that's what she was looking for. And although in the immediate days after she made those wishes on the lamp, the wishes didn't necessarily play out exactly the way that she that she thought they would. As we mentioned, unfortunately, Dirk's grandmother, Fifi, passes away in order to, to then allow the kids to move into her house. Yeah. She's left waiting for her partner for a little bit longer mm-hmm. after Dirk meets Duck. Like, it's not exactly seamless for her to get mm-hmm. the things that she asked for. And they have some bumps along the way. There's this conflict about whether or not they're going to have a baby. And then there's infidelity. Like, there's all of these things that get them to this final scene where they're all together. And in the end, even though it didn't necessarily play out how she thought it would, she she got the partner. Her best Mm -hmm. friend found love. They're in a home that makes them feel happy and safe and cozy and comfortable. So Mm -hmm. I think it just kind of goes to show that, like, there's a lot of different ways to find the love in the family that you're looking for. Yes. And I think that's a message that is equally as valuable today as it was 30 years ago. And the reason why, despite some of the name things, that I would still definitely recommend this book, even to young people. And like, I feel like I don't know of a better book that introduces such sort of revolutionary and like sweeping queer themes that is is still appropriate to a fairly young reader. Like, I don't know of any other book that fills this niche, um, which is part of why I'm so glad it is available and why I do think that, like, people are still going to be finding this for a long time and finding meaning in it. I got some messages from a few listeners when I posted a photo of Wheatsy Bat and shared that I was reading it. And the messages were something to the effect of, like, this book meant everything to me when I was a closeted gay kid, and it gave me hope that I could have a family. And that 
I could find mm-hmm. my secret lover, agent man, my lover, whatever the combination of words is, you know, it gave me hope that those things were in the cards for me as well, even if it didn't look like what it was for everyone else. Did you sort of identify with that part of it as a kid? Or do you think that it was sort of just the realization that for the first time you were reading about queer characters that was what tuned you into it in that very like sharp and visceral way? I don't remember having a conscious thought that was like, oh, this book makes things seem possible that I hadn't known were possible. I think part of it is almost that their family is not presented as strange or unusual. And also, um, though they struggle with dark things in the book, like homophobia is not one of them. There's never a moment where a character says anything that like their family is, is strange or is, should not, you know, is not a good family. Like there's, there's literally not a single hint of that in this story. So I really think actually it was really more as an adult reader that I was like, this book is revolutionary. Cause as a teen, I was more just like, this is a good book. Yeah. But this, I would say this book was, I found it right at the time when I was just probably a right around this time was when I first read like Boy Meets Boy, David Levithan and maybe Geography Club and um, probably Keeping You a Secret and Luna. Those are both by Jillianne Peters. I actually, those two have parts that don't age as well. But again, it was like the, the some of the few queer books that I could find at the time, Annie on My Mind, which was like a classic. So yeah, this was sort of like a book that then led me also to other books kind of in the same genre, probably on the same part of the shelf, the library. Um, and yeah, that just made me feel very comfortable as like a freshman in high school joining my school's queer straight alliance and starting to come out as bi to my friends and like being pretty confident that that was going to be well received. It's a very positive book. It ends on Mm -hmm. a happy note. And as you said, there's, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of fear about the construction of of their family. I think the closest that we get to that is Wheatie's dad is a little bit nervous just about the idea that they don't know who's father Cher- like who Cherokee's father is. Yeah. Um, but it's not at all in the context of like, why do you have a gay best friend? Like right. why why are these two men yeah. in love? It's much more about like I have this granddaughter and I sort of would like to know who her father is because listeners who haven't read the book the arrangement with Wheatsey and Dirk and Duck is that Wheatsey really wants to have a baby. Her partner does not want to have a baby. And so Dirk decides that the three of them should sleep together mm-hmm. and they're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about who the father is when Wheatsey yep. gets pregnant. And that's what happens. They never bother to like take a DNA test or do any nope. of those things. Um, so they're just and, raising yeah. Cherokee as like one of the family. And, and Wheatsey's father is like not thrilled about that, but there's not a lot of judgment. It's more just like, yeah. I don't know about this. It's, I just, I don't know how to like relate to her if I don't know who her, who her dad is. So I'd say that's the closest that you get yeah. toward homophobia. But I think it's still like, it's not super direct. And yeah, and in the end, it's like when my agent, uh, my secret agent man comes back, then we, like basically Cherokee ends up just having three dads and a mom. Um, again, we haven't touched on it as much, but my secret agent lover man ends up having an affair when he and Wheatstar are broken up and he ends up actually fathering a child as well. And the mother is not interested in raising that child. So that child ends up getting literally left on the doorstep of their fairytale cottage. And Wheatsey immediately adopts this baby too and is like, she is just as deserving of love and I'm going to raise her just the same. And they're both going to be my girls. And, um, that's pretty, that's pretty sweet too. She says, if you can accept Cherokee as yours without being sure, then I can accept Lily, even though I know she's not mine. I can accept her because you are her daddy-o. Besides she is cool and she likes me. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. And like, that's enough for Wheatsy. She has such a big heart. Like she has just love spilling out for absolutely everyone. They also have like two dogs that have very silly names and eventually have like six puppies. I'm obsessed with the dogs. Obsessed with um, them. There's Slinkster Dog is yeah. one of them. And then Go-Go Girl. Go-Go Girl. Right. Yeah. And they end up having like six puppies. So like, yeah, they have just a house full of house full of love. <laughs> yeah. I love the dogs. Slinkster Dog just makes me think of the dog in Toy Story. Mm. Who's the slinky dog. So in my head, <laughs> Slinkster Dog is oh like God. a dachshund. And then Go-Go Girl, the backstory there is that my secret agent lover man, as we mentioned, does not want to have a baby. And so when Weezy starts talking about wanting to be a mom, sort of like classic move, my secret agent lover man is just like, here, have another dog. Um, And this will be Slingster Dog's girlfriend. Um, And that is what happens. They have all these puppies. I love the details about the dogs. The details in this book are just great. I had to pull out a couple of quotes just that, that show off what an amazing writer Francesca Leah Block is. One of them is about Wheatsy and my secret agent lover man's first kiss. And I have to read it sort of because I just want to hear it. Like I just want to hear it. It's so beautiful. A kiss about apple pie a la mode made with the vanilla creaminess melting in the pie heat. A kiss about chocolate when you haven't eaten chocolate in a year. A kiss about palm trees speeding by, trailing pink clouds when you drive down the strip sizzling with champagne. A kiss about spotlights fanning the sky and the swollen sea spilling like tears all over your legs. And listeners, Maya's eyes are closed. We're both just kind of taking in how beautiful I closed my eyes and nodded along. (laughs) Yeah, it's so amazing. The writing is just insane. Yeah. It makes you want to, it makes me as a writer want to really focus on how I write my details because she is so great at it. The one sort of criticism that I found uh, as I was reading. I mean, there's a lot of criticism in terms of the content. Of course, this has been placed on, on oh. banned book lists, which I'm certainly not supportive of, but you can certainly see why, especially in the 90s, that would have I'm happened. not surprised at all, yes. Not surprising at all. Um, I think sort of our conversation thus far explains why that happened. But the other criticism that I found more in terms of like the style is that it it's almost too minimal. You know, some mm, critics yeah. love the fact that the language is so spare. And as we talked about, it allows you to like create all these other stories in your head about it. But others feel like it's maybe too simple and that some of these plot points just like whiz by and you don't even have a chance to like catch your breath about them. Did you feel that way at all? Or are you sort of in the camp of the spare language is great and I love that it's a hundred page book? I do think it's beautiful just the way it is. That being said, I I could have had more. Um, but mostly just because I really like it and I would like to know more. So yeah, I um I I would not be mad if it was fifty pages longer. <laughs> um and just went into yeah, just a little bit a little more detail here and there. I don't think it feels lacking. It's just that I think that extra would also be great. <laughs> because we love it so much. Yeah. So you read the other books in the series, or at least the next few. Mm-hmm. Do you have strong memories of those? Is it, is it a similar style where it's just about different characters, but again, very sparse language? Or do you get more about this story and about these characters? So I didn't reread any of the others right. for this podcast. So I don't 
super clearly remember. I do know that this one, I believe, was my favorite of the set. Um, and I liked all of the others, too. But this one really just stood out, maybe just because it was the first one I read. But yeah, I, what I recall is that there are char- the next books off focus on the children. So there's like one that's about Cherokee, one that's about Lily ends up getting renamed Witch Baby, or that's sort of her nickname. And then there's one that's about, yeah, Raphael's son, whose name I'm not remembering right now. And then I kind of don't remember what the other ones are about. And I believe they're of roughly equal length. And I do I do think that the writing style is very consistent. It's very descriptive and lovely and and kind of minimal. So I, I would say that they were right in line with this one. Okay. Um, but you don't necessarily get more about the characters that there are the adults or the the parents in this book like they're almost almost a little off screen if i recall correctly so it's like really a generational approach where now we're yes. learning about this next crop of family mm-hmm. members that are growing up yeah i am curious about which baby i think i would like to read more about what happened to which baby because what a crazy backstory she's left yes on a doorstep. Her mother is described as this witch. Her name is Vixan, but Weetzie calls her the witch. And, uh, you know, she's obviously mad that her partner cheated on her with this woman. And now she's adopting this other baby. And mm-hmm. which baby is, is, she seems so different than Cherokee. Cherokee yes. seems so calm and sweet and kind of like takes after the rest of her her biological family and that she's like almost whimsical and you picture mm-hmm. her just like going with the flow and which baby is extremely needy cries a lot like and then as she gets older and into toddlerhood she's a little destructive yep um but she she's is, a wild child <laughs> yeah, she's a wild child so I'm curious to see how she would grow up maybe that would be one that I would really be interested to read well I this is what I can remember and I'll give you this as a teaser what I remember is that yeah, Cherokee grows up to be a kind of very blonde blue-eyed kind of all-american hip, like cool hipster teen who like things come easily to her. She does well in school. People like her. They find her charming. Boys are into her. And Witch Baby grows up a little bit in Cherokee's shadow and always feels like the kind of scrawnier, skinnier, scrappier one who's like, yeah, climbing trees and falling out of them and getting into trouble and breaking things and causing a little bit of mischief. And that they do love each other, but they also have a lot of teen sister fights and which baby in her book ends up actually running away for a while. And I believe she actually goes to New York and lives in central park for a while in a bird nest in a tree. If I can remember correctly. All right. Sounds about right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I do recommend something else that I, that I wanted to share kind of big picture about this book and reflecting on it. And as I mentioned, I didn't read this as a teen, but I think what's really special about this book is that it's it's clearly been such a lifeline to so many teens mm-hmm. who were looking for characters that they could identify with. But growing up as as a cisgender teen, a straight teen, I think I still would have related to this book mm-hmm. in certain ways. I would have loved it. I would have appreciated it. And I think that that is really special that there's lessons to be learned no matter where you're coming from and you can find yourself in these characters. And in that way, I think it's like a really uniting Story. I think there's something that anybody can take from this book at any age, no matter how you identify. And I think that's really special. I agree. And I mean, part of it is that our lead character, Weetzi, is a a straight woman. And Mm -hmm. part of what she shows is like another thing, part of the theme of the book is like how to be a good friend, Mm -hmm. how to be 
supportive friend in difficult times, how to be a good partner, how to be a good family member. And like, yeah, those are things that all humans can hopefully relate to or will be interested in or can learn about and can relate to their own lives. So yeah, definitely, definitely. Listeners, I think it's also worth mentioning that we're going to be seeing a lot about Weetsy Bat hopefully coming up because there is movie news. I am so excited about this and I only heard about it today. Please tell me more. Like an hour ago. Um, Please say more. Let me tell you what I know, which isn't very much, but according to Francesca Leah Block's Instagram, which I stalked briefly as I was preparing. There have been discussions about a Weetsy Bat movie for ages, which makes sense. Again, this book is almost 30 years old, so it's been out there, and I'm sure that she has wanted it to happen, but it had to happen in the right way. Mm-hmm. And finally, in the last couple of months, they have cast the Aww. movie. There are humans now tied to the movie. I'm not familiar with the actress who is going to be Weetsy Bat, her name is Anya Taylor-Joy. She was in the movie The Witch. I don't know her. The one actor that's tied to the movie that I am familiar with is Nick Robinson, who was the lead in Love, Simon. Mm. And he has signed on to play Secret Agent Loverman, a.k.a. Max. Ooh, interesting. Yes. And they've also cast, I believe, um, Duck and Vixan. And Francesca Leah Block wrote the screenplay. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so I think that's all very exciting. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of Weetsy Bat news coming out soon. So if you haven't read the book, I highly recommend it. Yeah, pick it up now. Pick it up now. I'm telling you, you'll read it in two hours. It's very quick and you'll you'll love it. Now that we've come to the end of this conversation, and, and you've kind of hinted at your answer to this question, Maya, but do you love it all the more now that you read it as an adult? Or are you not so sure? I mean, we talked that there's some problems with it. We talked about the names it's not perfect. So mm-hmm. sort of on the whole, has it held up for you or were you disappointed in it overall? I think it has held up for me, but it also has been a good example of how I have grown as a person and that how the world has changed in this time. So I would say I still love it. It still holds up. I would still recommend it. But as with many books, I would probably, I might, I might recommend it with a small caveat, but I mean, almost not like pretty much nothing is perfect. I'm going to actually maybe say nothing period is perfect. And even books that I have loved for years and years. I mean, I love Harry Potter, but it's flawed. And I don't think that the fact that something has flaws should mean that you can't enjoy it or that you can't take from it what you need and what you, the parts that really mean something to you. So do I wish that there was not a white character named Cherokee? Yes. But do I also think that this, the overall message of this book is really strong and beautiful and needed? Also, yes. So that's my answer. I was having a conversation the other day with a friend about this concept of our cancel culture. Yeah. And how we're so quick to just cancel it. If it's, mm-hmm. if it's problematic, cancel it. And it's something that I've struggled with a lot with this podcast because obviously it's extremely important to me to flag issues yes. that I think we're not talking about with some of these books. Like these are beloved stories that so many kids have appreciated over so many decades, but that doesn't mean that the books are perfect and it's not necessarily the book's fault. They come from a different time. Mm -hmm. The authors weren't educated on certain issues the way that we are. So I really want to open up conversations about those issues. That being said, I have to be careful as the host of this podcast that I don't immediately flag those issues and decide that the book has to be quote unquote canceled. Like it's no good anymore. And so I think finding that balance has been a really interesting exercise 
in this time of, of history in 2019 when we are very quick to cancel things and to write things off. So I think there's so much value in We'd See Bat and so many other books. It's just a matter of like figuring out the elements of those books that we need to, to identify as not necessarily in line with where we are today. Yeah. And I really saddened by, I guess you could say cancel culture. And part of it is that like, I feel like everything is worth a critical discussion mm-hmm. and even something, yeah, that has a lot of flaws instead of just saying, let's throw that in the garbage immediately. I would rather have a conversation about it. Um, and I think it's more valuable and more interesting to, um, especially a beloved classic talk about like, why do we still love this? What are the things that we would change? Can we open up? Actually, can we learn from this? Can we maybe learn from things we consider mistakes? Um, and I feel like it's much more valuable to not like cherish things that are problematic, but to not ignore them or just throw them away and pretend that that means they didn't exist or that they're gone, but to have, yeah, a thoughtful, nuanced conversation about them. That's what I would prefer. And that's what I get from many podcasts. Podcasts have become possibly my favorite media to acquire information. I listen to so many. And what I love about a podcast is it's generally, often it's a conversation between two or more people that goes into the nuances of something. And many ones that are about pop culture, many of the ones that are about TV shows are saying, we love the show. We love this character, but look, this show from the nineties has a hundred percent white cast. Let's talk about that. Would we do it differently today? Does this mean that we can't love it or should we actually just sort of like investigate it instead? So, mm-hmm. yeah, those are my favorite kind of podcasts too. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you been reading other than we'd see bad that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh my goodness. Um, I'm going to very briefly actually click over to my Goodreads to help me remember. This is the one problem of reading a hundred books a year is they do start to blur together. Do you read multiple books at once? I used to, and I do that less and less. Okay. So I recently wrote a memoir myself. In fact, it might be released the day of this podcast episode. If the yes. timing works out right. The book that yes. I wrote is called Gender Queer, a memoir, and it's about gender and identity and sexuality and coming of age. And it's about reading and be- being a late reader. So these are not going to fall into your usual sort of middle grade um, genre. But I read um, Sick by Parachista Kakpur, um, which is a story about living for many years undiagnosed with Lyme's disease and how that affected her career and her life. I read What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young, which is about growing up black and nerdy and anxious in America. And it's so smart. I read a whole bunch of comic books all by Lucy Nisley, who writes wonderfully about her life. Um, I read Sissy by Jacob Tobiah, which is a coming of gender story. So I've been reading a lot of, um, I guess you might call them like own voices narratives. Um, I've just been so, so into memoir lately. Well, I'll include links to all of those books in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link, of course, to your book, which, as you mentioned, comes out oh so conveniently the week that this episode drops. Congratulations. This is so amazing. Can you share a little bit more? about your book because I'm sure listeners want to know about it. Yeah. Um, so it is a comic book. It is 240 pages, full color. I wrote and drew it and my sibling Phoebe Kobabe did the digital colors for it. It is published by Lion Forge. It is available in any comic book shop or major uh, bookstore retailer. It was named a, I forget if it's it called best or most exciting graphic novel of May by Barnes and Noble. So it made their list. Yeah. Um, 
very exciting. And yeah, it's, it's all about me. Um, it's I am the ta- star. <laughs> it's, like, it's all about me. Um, so it kind of, I, it starts when I'm two years old and goes up until last year when I was 29. And it's mostly focused on themes of, like I said, gender and sexuality. So exploring my own identity, trying to discover language for concepts like transness that I didn't have language for as a young person. Um, it talks about coming out in high school to friends, coming out to my parents for the first time, first as queer, and then a decade later also as non-binary. And yeah, just how I sort of learned about myself through other work. So through books, through TV shows, through other media, and how much like queer books and queer stories meant to me in my own kind of journey of self-discovery. So... Well, that sounds fantastic. Again, congratulations. I'm looking forward to checking it out. Listeners, there will be a link to Maya's book in the show notes. So please go on over and support. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much for being part of the show. I really have enjoyed talking with you. And thank you for getting me to read Weetsy Bat finally. Yay! I know. And um, so Francesca Leah Block is very productive. Like, I don't know how many other books she's written. I wouldn't say like at least 20. A lot. Um, I think I I read like 25, 30 somewhere. Yeah. So if if readers um, read this book and enjoy it, there's so much more where it came from, which is great. Yeah. I feel like I kind of need to go on a little bit of a Francesca Leah Block reading marathon one of Mm -hmm. these days. We'll see. Maybe this summer. Good summer reading material. Great summer books. Yeah, such a beautiful writer. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Congratulations again on your book launch. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.